0: Thousand generations of Jedi Knights and the Guardians of Peace, Justice, and Lord. Welcome back to a People's History of the Old Republic. Episode 7.7 7, SLAM the Reset Button. Last time, we watched the rise and fall of the Eternal Empire and saw the death of Valkorion. This time, we say a fond farewell to the Alliance and wrap up Swotor by slamming the metaphorical galactic reset button. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends.
1: Star Wars The Old Republic Part 7 The Order of Zildrog Conflict and the Third Galactic War from 3630 to 3626 BBY. Last time, we said our fond farewells to Valkorion and watched the Eternal Empire rise to heights that won't be equaled for thousands of years before it fell to infighting, bad luck, and the Alliance. Following the Eternal Empire's conquest of the galaxy in 3635, they turned the Republican Sith into vassal states. Four years later, the commander, Lana Beneco and Theron Chan formed the Alliance, gathering every friendship they could to fight the Eternal Empire using the resurrected Gravestone as their flagship. This rebellion became known as the Alliance Revolt against the Eternal Empire, and it would last until 3630. By the end of the revolt, the Alliance had broad support from every major and minor political faction in the galaxy, as well as criminal syndicates and smugglers. During the revolt, the alliance defeated all comers, including Emperor Arcan, Empress Valen, and the Eternal Empire itself. Following Valen's death at the Second Battle of Odessan, the commander sat upon the Eternal Throne, assuming control of the remaining Eternal fleet. Then, Valkorion attempted to assert dominance over the commander's body, but was finally permanently killed by the combined power of the commander, Senyazral, Arcan, and Valen. When we left off, In late 3630, the Alliance had just absorbed the remainder of the Eternal fleet and was reorganized into the Eternal Alliance with the commander as its leader. In this episode, we will talk about two conflicts spawned by the revolt, the Order of Zildrog campaign and the Third Galactic War. The Order of Zildrog conflict occurs at the end of the fourth story expansion, Knights of the Eternal Throne, as do the first few battles of the Third Galactic War, while Onslaught, the game's fifth story expansion, covers the end of the Third Galactic War up to 3626. Last episode ended with the conclusion of the revolt, so we'll pick up the narrative there, finish Knights of the Eternal Throne, and then talk about Onslaught. Finally, we will try to give SWTOR a fitting summation and bid the SWTOR bubble a fond farewell. Remember, every story element and plot device that doesn't exist outside the SWOTOR bubble has to be destroyed or otherwise removed before we can hit the reset button on the galaxy.
0: The Order of Zildrog Campaign God, that's a stupid name. Even by Starward standards, that's a stupid name. As we said last time, there were many who held grudges against the Eternal Alliance and or the Commander. The Galactic and, the Galactic Republic and Sith Empire saw the Eternal Alliance as a rival political and military faction, though they were still all nominal allies, so any resistance to the Eternal Alliance from the Republic or Sith would be clandestine in nature for the time being. However, Zakul, which served as the former capital of the Eternal Empire, was headed toward open rebellion against the Eternal Alliance. The citizens of Zakul still worshipped an imperial cult and hated being ruled from Odessan. The military was still loyal to Valkorian's imperial household, even if he was dead and, and they wanted to regain their honor. For some reason, the Eternal Alliance didn't incorporate much of the Zekulon military following the defeat of the Eternal Empire. Into this vacuum stepped Vin Atreus, a former member of Valen's elite Horizon Guard who wished to halt the suffering of his people and take vengeance on the Alliance. To that end, in 3629, Atreus created the Order of Zildrog, taking the name from an old Zakulan deity and the name of a superweapon supercomputer from Iacath. The Order's goal was simple, locate and activate Zildrog and use it to destroy the Eternal Alliance. Early on, Atreus met met Gemini-16, a Gemini droid who retained her free will after Valen's factory reset, and she joined the Order.
1: Soon thereafter, Gemini 16 hacked the Eternal Alliance base on Odessan, allowing the Order of Zildrog to see and hear their every move. Over the next several months, Atris found many willing recruits. Atris signed up other members of the Horizon Guard, most of the remaining knights of Zakul, and other warriors to join his nascent rebellion. In mid-3629, the Order began... Secretly funded and initially, uh, uh, the order began secretly funded and initiated a series of uprisings against Eternal Alliance operations in numerous systems, including Hoth, Rakata Prime, Coruscant, and more. Each of these was put down easily, but they were still concerning because the uprising seemed coordinated in some way. At this time, Theron Chan learned of the Order of Zildrog and began attempting to infiltrate it. Theron couldn't inform the commander or Lana Benico because he also learned that Order was somehow monitoring Alliance actions. Both Atreus and Gemini-16 were wary of Sean and refused to grant him admission, but Sean was certain that the Order was planning to destroy the Eternal Alliance and had to be stopped at all costs. To that end, Theron laid a trap for the Eternal Alliance that would seem to prove his dedication to the Order of Zildrog. Shauna leaked the location of the six old gods superweapons on Lokath. The old god superweapons were six gigantic war droid mechs invented by the Lokath species thousands of years before and tested on worlds like Zakul. Over time, these stories of giant mechs morphed into a pantheon of six old gods worshipped by the Zakulans before Valkorion arrived and wiped away their old beliefs. The old gods are now the Twenty second through twenty-seventh super weapons of the show.
0: When we started keeping count of the super weapons. I guess I just forgot that uh, that this is how Sotor was. Anyway. Return to Ayakath in 3629, Theron and the commander traveled to Ayakath in the gravestone, leading the Eternal Fleet. When the Alliance dropped out of hyperspace, they found the Republic and Sith fleets preparing to resume hostilities for control of the Old Gods. At this point, a signal from Iacath severed the connection between the Eternal Fleet and Eternal Throne, disabling the entire fleet. The commander and Shan traveled. Iacath to investigate, meeting up with Lana Benico. Over Hologram, the commander attempted to mediate the situation between Republic Supreme Commander Jason Malcolm and Sith Empress Asina, but it soon became clear that neither side would budge and the Alliance would have to side with one of them. And this is where the Eternal Alliance really begins to run into problems. The commander chose the Republic, a move that sent Asina into a pretty justifiable rage, at least from her point of view. The Sith fleet quite literally saved the Alliance from destruction during Valen's invasion of Voss. Unfortunately for Empress Asina, the commander is doing a light side run. After siding with the Republic, the commander, Theron, and Lana coordinated with Jace Malcolm, which led to Theron and Jace finally reconciling their relationship. Fighting between the Republic and Sith began immediately, with the Sith making a base on Iokath's surface while Acena sought out the Old Gods. Republic troops pushed against the Sith base, while the commander in Theron went to stop Asina, but they were too late. Sith engineers had reverse-engineered Iokath tech to allow the Old Gods to be controlled via an Iokath throne, not unlike the Eternal Throne. Shan and the commander arrived as Asina sat on the throne, felt a shock through her body, and awakened the six super weapon mechs. However, the shock from the jury rigged throne was so powerful that it killed Asina and knocked out the signal jamming the Gemini frequency, bringing the Eternal Fleet back online. Theron went to stop activation of the other mechs while the commander ascended another throne and survived the shock. While the commander ascended another throne, survived the shock, and spoke with Tith, one of the six old gods.
1: Tith warned the commander of an order of Zildrog traitor in their midst before obliterating an Eternal Fleet ship with an energy blast. Through the excruciating pain of the throne, the commander ordered the Eternal Fleet to fire on Tith, knocking the massive droid out of commission. The commander's unconscious body was taken back to recover, while the Eternal fleet fired upon and disabled the remaining five old gods. After this, the Republican Sith battle on Lokath fell into a stalemate, with neither side able to claim victory. The Sith soon abandoned Lokath after Darth Valron was proclaimed the new Sith Emperor and withdrew all his forces. In the aftermath of Lokath, Vin Atreus was still suspicious of Theron and demanded he prove his Good intentions toward the order by stealing a shipment of Adagan crystals from Umbara. At the same time, the commander, Lana, and Theron traveled to Umbara hoping to catch the traitor. On Umbara, a world covered in perpetual darkness, Theron revealed himself to be the traitor and shot Lana in the shoulder before escaping Umbara with half of the Adagan crystals. After the mission to Umbara, Theron Chan was finally admitted to the Order and tasked with finding the location of Zildrog. Using his Underworld connections, Shan traveled to Kolporo, a world within the Chiss Ascendancy, and discovered that Zildrog was stored in one of Valkorian's underground vaults on Nathama. Upon receiving the location, the Order of Zildrog traveled to Nathama and began excavating the underground vault. However, Shane really was trying to bring down the order, so he leaked the location to Lana Benico via encrypted back channels that only the two of them knew.
0: The Nathema Conspiracy In 3628, the commander and Lana traveled to Nathema in a shuttle, leaving Hilo Viz as acting admiral of the Eternal Fleet, which was mustered above Odessa. On Nathema, the Order of Zildrog had already unearthed Zildrog, the ancient superweapon supercomputer, and worked to bring it back online. Theron snuck away from the Order to rejoin the commander and Lana. Despite their skepticism, the commander welcomed Theron back. The game makes it pretty obvious that Theron was only working with Zildrog to protect the Alliance, and he constantly left clues in places only Lana would know to look. The trio set off to stop Zildrog's activation, though they would arrive too late. Gemini-16 began reactivating Zildrog, but then betrayed the Order, revealing that she only cared about destroying the Eternal Fleet that was her prison for so long. The trio of the Commander, Lana, and Theron arrived, but were detained by ray shields, while Gemini-16 had the last laugh. Gemini 16 revealed that Zildrog had two separate forms that it could simultaneously control. The first is the supercomputer on Nathema, and the second is the gravestone. With Zildrog awakened and online, Gemini 16 allowed Zildrog to piggyback onto the Gemini frequency so that he could control the gravestone remotely. After years of hibernation, Zildrog demanded a target to feed on, and Gemini helpfully, po- helpfully pointed him to the Eternal Fleet above orbit, in orbit above Odessa. Zildrog connected to the Gravestone remotely and piloted the ship into space. Then, with absolutely no warning whatsoever, Zildrog fired multiple blasts from the Gravestone's Omni Cannon, destroying the Eternal Fleet in moments. Zildrog then began recharging the Omnicannon and planned to turn it on Odesson. And for obvious reasons, Zildrog is now the 28th and 29th super weapons to appear on the show.
1: Back on Nathema, the trio were freed from their ray shield and quickly destroyed Gemini 16, but the damage was already done. Theron attempted to shut Zildrog down, but was stabbed in the back with a lightsaber by Ven Atris. While the Omni Cannon recharged, Zildrog shared some of its power with Atrus, who fought the Commander and Lana but was ultimately killed. Before the weapon recharged, the Commander destroyed Zildrog's supercomputer console on Nathema. Destroying the main console killed Zildrog, which activated the Gravestone self destruct protocols, causing it to explode over Odessin. With Zildrog's destruction, The Order of Zildrog campaign was over after almost two years. The Eternal Alliance technically won in that it survived as an entity while the Order of Zildrog and their namesake were both blotted out of existence. But the victory was nothing if not Pyrrhic. The Eternal Alliance lost the Eternal Fleet and the Gravestone in a five minute span and there's simply no way they could recover from that. Yes, the Alliance still had the Commander, a small ground army, and a mixed fleet of mostly smuggler ships, but that's about it. They weren't getting reinforcements from the Republic or Sith, and they certainly weren't getting any aid from Zakool. So it was that the Eternal Alliance went from a galactic superpower to a largely forgotten quasi-governmental entity out in wild space. The Alliance never held much territory. Its mandate and power came from the Eternal Fleet and the Gravestone, but those were both gone. In the aftermath of the Order of Zildra campaign, Zekul formed a new elective government and peacefully seceded from the Eternal Alliance. Zakul also withdrew from all colony worlds that were holdovers from the days of the Eternal Empire and faded blissfully into galactic obscurity. The Eternal Alliance continued operating from Odessa, led by the commander, Landa Benico, and a fully recovered Theron Chan.
0: The Third Galactic War With the conclusion of the Order of Zildrog campaign turning the Eternal Alliance into something of a non-entity, the Republic, kind of slash Jedi, and Sith decided it was time to have one more galactic war to settle things after the last war got sidetracked in 3639. After all, the Sith Empire we've been covering in SWTOR is the biggest anachronism left, and it has to disappear before we hit the reset button. So, let's briefly set the stage for this third, and hopefully final, Galactic War by looking at where our major players stand. The Sith Empire is, in short, a hot mess. Outside of 3638, when they were able to secretly steal Isotope 5 from McKeb, everything's been downhill for the Sith since the Galactic War began. In 3640, the Empire was rocked by the death of the Sith Emperor and the defections of the Dreadmasters and Malgus. In 3636, the Sith Empire underwent total culture shock after the Sith Emperor's spirit returned and betrayed them by scouring all life on Syost. As if that wasn't bad enough, the Eternal Empire raids hit Korriban in 3636, dealing dealing the Sith another crushing defeat. Then, Darth Maur, the de facto Sith leader, died attempting a counterattack on the Eternal Fleet in late 3636. In 3635, the Sith were defeated and turned into vassals by the Eternal Empire after their successful conquest of the galaxy. In 3630, the Sith officially joined the alliance, only to then have the commander and Lana Beniko side with the Republic on Iocath in 3629, leading to the death of Empress Sassina. After Asina's death, Darth Valron ugh, terrible name, was proclaimed Emperor and immediately withdrew the Sith to consolidate power, reforming the Broken Dark Council. After a year of reloading with an Isotope 5 enhanced fleet, Sith Emperor Valron now believes the Sith are ready to find and kill the remaining Jedi and take down the Republic for good. Meanwhile, the Galactic Republic was, well, the same Republic we know and love. Corrupt, woefully inept in most things, yet always the lesser of two evils. Led by Supreme Commander Jace Malcolm, the Republic military is battle-hardened and ready to fight, but will need the help of the Jedi to win the war. We don't have any info on how galactic territory was divided between the Republic and Sith at this time, so we'll assume it stayed roughly the same from the beginning of the Galactic War, with the Sith contained mostly to the mid and outer rims.
1: In 3628, the Jedi Order was, once again, a shattered mess. From the beginning of the Galactic War in 3642 until just before the Eternal Empire raged in 3636, the Jedi were doing fine. Working from the ancient homeworld of Tython and led by Grand Master Satilshan, the Jedi were a major part of the Republic's continued success. When the Eternal Empire invaded, the Jedi protected civilians, and defended as best they could, but their efforts were in vain. By the time the Eternal Empire's subjugation of the galaxy was complete in 3635, hundreds if not thousands of Jedi had been killed. In the aftermath, the remaining Jedi scattered as the Council feared they would be purged again. The Jedi went into exile alone or in very small enclaves hidden away until the time was right to resurface. Grandmaster Shon blamed herself for the Order's failure to stop the Eternal Empire and went into self-imposed exile on Odessan. Though random one-off Jedi were still at large in the galaxy, they were few and far between. So even though Jedi were around, the Jedi Order as an organization was not. That started to change when Sattel came out of exile after helping the commander in 3631. With her hope for the future renewed, Grandmaster Shan began training a new generation of Jedi on Coruscant by 3630. Unfortunately, Satel Shon and some of the young Jedi were infected with the Sith Plague around 3627 after reviving Lord Scourge and Kira Carson, each of whom had been in a years-long coma after destroying Valkorion's original body. In order to save those infected, Scourge and Carson placed them in stasis aboard a ship that would travel undisturbed until a cure is found. However, other Jedi would soon leave their exiles, gather others, and rejuvenate the Order. By the end of the Third Galactic War, the Jedi will have recovered once again with some help from the Republic. The Mandalorians are still around in a diminished capacity, led by Shea Visla, a.k.a. Mandalore the Avenger. Despite being small in number, the Mandalorians fight with their typical skill and ferocity. The Mandos... Lack cohesive territory at this point, and seems to be more of a nomadic band with bases strewn across the galaxy.
0: The beginning of the end of the Eternal Alliance. Lastly, there's the Eternal Alliance formed as just the alliance in 3631 the organization has gone from a tiny rebellion against the eternal empire into the strongest galaxy into the strongest power in the galaxy and has since devolved back into a tiny coalition gone are the eternal fleet the gemini droids and the gravestone all of which made the eternal alliance into a galactic superpower on par with the republican sith much of the Eternal Alliance's legitimacy as a political entity rested in the, rested on those weapons. The Eternal Alliance never held any territory beyond Odessen and briefly Zakuul. Now they don't. Now they don't even have that after Zakul seceded in the wake of the Order of Zildrog campaign. By 3628, any and all power the Eternal Alliance still held was vested in personal loyalty to the commander, Lana Beniko, Theron Shan, or Koth Vertenna. The Eternal Alliance retained a small fleet, but that was mostly smugglers and had no ground forces left. The defeat of the Eternal Empire and the Order of Zildrog fulfilled the Eternal Alliance's primary purpose, causing most of its forces to disperse back to their original factions. If they still had the Gravestone and the Eternal Fleet, things would have obviously been different, but they didn't have them, so almost everyone left Odessan, and the Eternal Alliance albeit on friendly terms. Sensing the coming conflict between the Republic and Sith, Lana Beniko encouraged the commander to side with one faction or the other. The Sith were still pretty upset about the commander siding with the Republic on Iocath in 3629, so the commander sided with the Republic again. Though Lana Beniko and Theron Sean each agreed with the commander's decision, neither joined at that time, choosing choosing instead to remain on Odesson. After meeting with Republic SIS operative Jonah Balkar, the Eternal Alliance was informally folded into the Republic. The commander and interim Supreme Chancellor Galena Rands will eventually formalize an official plan for the integration of the Eternal Alliance.
1: The Battle of Ossus the Third Galactic War begins in 3628 when the Sith Empire emerges from its year-long seclusion, sporting invisible Isotope 5-enhanced isotope ships with a few secret weapons. There were two minor skirmishes early on, but the first major Sith target was the old, adopted Jedi homeworld of Ossus, which was rendered lifeless at the end of the Great Sith War in 3996. Now, some 368 years later... Jedi Master Nost-Dural oversees a secret farming colony composed of a couple dozen Jedi and civilian volunteers. Since 3635, this Jedi farming colony has subsisted using advanced farming techniques and equipment that make the colony viable on Osos. The colony stayed secret until 3628. The Republic SIS learned about the Jedi farming colony and the imminence of the attack just before Jonas Balker met with a commander who agreed to the to aid in the defense of Ossus. The plot was uncovered by Republic General Ardenondu Dayrun, a member of the Krek species who were massive humanoids covered in scales with large horns protruding from their heads. General Dayrun stumbled across the Sith fleet massing near Ossus and alerted Republic High Command. The commander arrived on Ossus, warning nost of the impending threat, and met some of the other colonists, including Nadia Grell, the Barsinthor's former Padawan learner, and Doc, one of the Hero of Tython's former companions. Led by Jedi Knight and head of colony security, Tao Adair, the small Jedi farming colony prepared their ground defenses while the Republic fleet massed in orbit. The Sith dropped out of hyperspace and a space battle immediately began while a small Sith team reached the surface. During the initial Sith ground assault, the combatants were all surprised by the sudden return of Darth Malgus, who emerged from a shipping container. Additional Republic troops aided the ground defense, while the commander and Tau Adair defeated Darth Malora in combat in the ruins of the Great Jedi Library. After their advance was rebuffed, the Sith retreated, with the Jedi and Republic suffering only light casualties. Nost Dural was grievously wounded in a lightsaber duel with Malgus, but Doc was able to save the old Jedi Master's life.
0: Knights of the Eternal Throne Ends Yes, we're somehow still in this expansion. In the aftermath, the Jedi colony lent their farming and agricultural data to the Republic, which would be used to alleviate a galactic resource crisis that was causing starvation on many worlds. The Sith attack on Ossus failed because they assumed they would only be attacking a few dozen colonists, not the entire Republic fleet. They looked to rectify this mistake at Dantooine, which lay in the Outer Rim just outside of Sith territory and was used as a jumping off point for Republic attacks. Since Dantooine was guarded by a fleet and a massive planet-wide shield, a direct attack was impossible. The Sith countered this by contracting with the Nova Blades pirate gang who would launch a diversionary attack allowing the Sith to send in a covert team to establish a ground base before bringing down the shield generator. Early in 3627 the Nova Blades launched their attack allowing the Sith to set up on the ground. However in the subsequent attack on the shield generator the Nova Blades arrived first and then betrayed their nominal Sith allies. The Blades demanded 15 million credits from each side to free the shield generator, and other members of the gang stopped their attacks to loot whatever plunder they could scrounge. With their plans betrayed, the Sith fled Dantooine, leaving the Nova Blades to their fate in dealing with the Republic. That an- And that anticlimactic battle is where Swator's fourth story expansion, Knights of the Eternal Throne, ends, Setting up the rebuilding of the Jedi Order and the last gasp of the true Sith Empire.
1: Swotor Onslaught. Released in October 2019, Onslaught is Swotor's fifth and most likely final story expansion. With the Eternal Empire fully out of the way, Onslaught is a way to wrap up the other massive loose end left by Swotor, the true Sith Empire. As we've noted, The iteration of Sith in Swotor has to be totally eliminated from the galaxy by circa 3500 BBY due to a pre-existing character named Darth Desolus, an ex-Jedi who re-established the non-existent Sith. Unlike the past two expansions, which were both massive, Onslaught is the shortest of the five-story expansions by a wide margin. However, it already received one content update in February 2020 that added new quests and according to Charles Boyd, will likely receive one more update to tie up the remaining loose ends. Of course, we have no idea about a timetable due to COVID, though we will obviously update this episode if additional content is released. In Onslaught, the player once again assumes the role of the commander, continuing their actions from the main story and the four other expansions. Lana Benico, Theron Chan, and Koth Vortena return as the commander's companions. Onslaught allows male or female Sith warriors to romance Jesa Wilsom regardless of their light dark alignment. This is a change from the original game where only male Sith warriors who fully follow the dark side could romance Wilsom. Jesa Wilsom is the last of seven LGBT plus romanceable characters who appear in Swotor. Sitharat, Lemda Avesta, Theron Chan, Lana Benico, Koth Vortana, Arkan, and Wilson, As we like to say, more representation is always a good thing in Star Wars. At the very end of the most recent update, there also appears to be a path for the Jedi Knight class to romance Lord Scourge. However, it's unclear what the parameters are or if it's anything more than innocent flirting. We will cover onslaught from the attack on the Sith fleet in mid Thirty-six twenty-seven through the task at hand content update, which deals with the aftermath from the Battle of Corellia in thirty-six twenty-six. However, since there are still loose ends, we don't really have a conclusion yet, so we'll just wing it from there.
0: The last ride of the true Sith Empire. Though the Sith began the Third Galactic War with embarrassing defeats at Ossus and Dantooine, they could have won both. They could have won both easily, if not for bad breaks. General Dayrun's discovery of the Jedi Farming Colony and Sith plans was pure happenstance, and the Nova Blade's betrayal was the only thing that kept them from achieving their goals at Dantooine. To Emperor Val'ron and the Dark Council, it appeared that the Sith were only unlucky in their first two losses, which is a matter of opinion, and that the Republic was vulnerable without the Jedi support, which is true the Sith developed a plan to take advantage of the Republic's weakness before the Jedi could be reorganized. Remember, the Sith withdrew from the galaxy for for a full year beginning in 3629. They spent that time well building a massive fleet which contributed greatly to the galactic resource crisis. They outfitted as many ships as possible with the remaining Isotope 5 and incorporated the fleet of silencers that was under Darth Nox's control before their disappearance. The silencers were ship-mounted laser cannons that could fire on planets, devastating ground targets. A single one of them can't destroy a whole planet, but they can kill a lot of people regardless. With all their ships consolidated into a single fleet, the Sith could overwhelm the remaining Republic fleet. The Sith built their entire strategy in the Third Galactic War around Corellia and the Meridian Complex, an under-construction shipyard with new tech that that could build ships three times faster and at a fraction of the energy cost. Along with keeping the Jedi scattered, the Sith viewed the Meridian Complex as the key to the Third Galactic War. If they destroyed it, they undercut the the Republic's ability to rapidly build ships and making their fleet unstoppable. If, on the other hand, they successfully conquer Corellia and take the Meridian Complex, the war would be over. Having production capabilities of that magnitude on a core world near, near Coruscant would assuredly mean victory. Win at Corellia, and the war is over. Lose at Corellia, and your empire will blink out of existence in the aftermath. So it was that the Sith focused all their efforts around Corellia.
1: The Sith plan was fairly simple. Draw as much of the Total Republic fleet as possible away from the Core Worlds, destroy their refueling stations leading back to the Core Worlds, and then invade Corellia with far less resistance. By the time the Republic refueled, Corellia and the Meridian complex would belong to the Sith. To this end, the Sith began sabotaging, attacking, and generally making trouble at refueling locations scattered throughout the Inner and Mid-Rims. One such location was a refueling station built in a mined-out asteroid on the edge of Hut Space, called Mekshah. During the Hut conquest of Macab in thirty-six thirty-eight. Grithadar, a Nicto slave, incited a slave rebellion against the hut masters on their feeling station, teeming with mercenaries, pirates, and others. The slaves ousted the huts, declared their individual freedom, and seceded from hut space. Grithadar was given the title Hutbreaker," renamed the space station Meksha in honor of a fallen friend, and appointed a ruling council to run Meksha for the past eleven years. Mechsha has remained an independent refueling station that was sometimes used by Republic fleets heading toward the Core Worlds. During that time, Hutbreaker built a failsafe in case of invasion. If triggered, the failsafe would ignite all the fuel, causing a massive explosion that would kill everyone and destroy all nearby ships. In late 3627, the Sith sought to trigger Hutbreaker's failsafe while a contingent of the Republic fleet was refueling, killing two birds with one explosion, if you will. Unfortunately for the Sith, the commander was leading this Republic Armada, securing permission to dock and beginning the lengthier refueling process. With the Republic ships immobilized, the Sith attacked, attempting to fight their way to Huttbreaker and trigger her failsafe. But it was not to be, as the commander rallied Republic soldiers and local Nexha groups to stop the Sith and avoid being blown to hell. In a brief skirmish, Mechshaw's defenders drove the Sith off the station while Republic ships were freed to combat Sith ships in space. The Sith fled in a chaotic retreat, marking the fourth consecutive defeat of the war after Ossus, Dantooine, and a random fleet battle the Republic won in an unknown system.
0: While destroying Mechshaw would have been nice for the Sith, it paled in comparison to the importance of Onderon. Since it joined the Republic in 4002 BBY, Onderon has served as the main refueling station for for Republic fleets heading toward the Core Worlds from the Outer Rim due to its strategic location at the edges of the Inner Rim. When the Sith invade Corellia, any Republic ships attempting to reinforce Corellia from the eastern or northern parts of the galaxy would have to stop at Onderon for fuel. Eliminating Onderon would greatly delay large parts of the Republic fleet from arriving on Corellia until it was too late. This will be our third trip to Onderon after Tales of the Jedi and KOTOR 2. Once again, Onderon's chaotic monarchy is being manipulated by agents of the Dark Side. In Tales of the Jedi, it was revealed that the ruling dynasty was founded as a Dark Side monarchy by Dark Lord of the Sith Freedon Nadd. The line of dark side rulers was broken in 3998 BBY after Jedi intervention assure, assured the ascension of Queen Galia. Later, during the Sith Civil War and the events of Kotor II, the Jedi ex- exile Mitra Surik supported Queen Talia against an attempted palace coup by General Vaklu, who was secretly being aided by the Sith and Darth Nihilus. With Sirk's aid, Vaklu was defeated, and Queen Talia continued to rule, and Onderon remained in the Republic.
1: Yet another Battle of Onderon. Now, in late 3627, a new iteration of the Sith are up to some of their old tricks. Three years before... Regalin Petriff was crowned king of Onderon, and he began strip-mining the planetary sources to line his own pockets. Petriff also proved woefully inept and eventually retreated to a royal hunting lodge, allowing Deja Nebet, Onderon's senator, to serve as de facto leader along with the Council of Nobles. In his hunting lodge, Petriff was manipulated by Darth Savik of the Dark Council into believing that Nebet was going to seize the throne via coup. Petriff agreed to lead his own coup, which would seize the palace in Isis and turn Onderon's anti-spacecraft guns on friendly Republican Onderon ships in orbit. Petriff led the coup and attempted to take the guns, while his enforcer, Akoru, led the palace assault. In the end, Petriff was defeated as the commander and their companions arrived to lend support to Senator Nebet. Petriff fled back to Darth Savik and left the planet, attempting to escape justice and make it to Sith space. However, after the commander defeated Savik, he gave up the location of Petriff's shuttle, allowing the Republic fleet to capture him. Meanwhile, in the palace, Senator Nebit fought Akuru in an honor duel. Though Akuru was a hulk of a man, Nebit was a former member of the Andron Royal Guard, and she used those skills well killing Akuru in a sword fight. When all was said and done, another Sith-backed coup of Onderon was stopped by Republic-slash-Jedi intervention, and the world's refueling station remained open. Though the Sith didn't openly participate in the fighting, their plans were foiled. They would still attack Corellia, but their efforts to hamper Republican Jedi reinforcements had
0: all been in vain. Yet another battle of Corellia. By early 3626, the Sith window to attack was closing rapidly. Within days, the Meridian complex would go online, and the Republic fleet would have the capacity to crush the Sith once and for all. The Sith Empire gathered every warship they could find, totaling hundreds of warships and well over 100,000 crew and troops, then divided them into thirds. Darth Krovos was given one, while Darth Malgus was given control over the other two-thirds. Malgus's two fleets, armed with the silencers, dropped out of hyperspace and immediately began the attack while Krovos' ships came out of hyperspace on the other side of the planet, unleashing an an orbital bombardment. During the initial attack, Amalgus led a team of shuttles cloaked with Isotope 5 to land on the surface and begin the attack on the Meridian Complex. General Daeron learned of the attack moments before the Sith arrived and ordered every ship that the Republic could find to reinforce Corellia. The response was slowed by the fact that they had to refuel, but at least Mech Shah and Onderon were still open. The commander arrived with their companions and went to aid in the defense of the Meridian complex along with Tau Adair and her new Padawan Arn Perilin. Many of Nostaral's Jedi colonists aided in defending Corellia, as did the local Jedi who were in exile there. Corellia always produced a great number of Force sensitives during the New Jedi Order era, and this was true even in the Old Republic. One Corellian Jedi, Jakir Halcyon, is almost certainly a distant relative of Nija and Skara Halcyon, the parents of Valenhorn and the grandparents of Korinhorn. The space battle was fierce as silencers blasted away at Corellia's surface, but the Republic fleet took the upper hand and began to drive the Sith Sith fleet back. On the surface... The commander dueled Darth
1: Malgus in the Meridian Complex. Up close, it was clear Malgus had even more extensive cybernetic done since his apparent death on Ilum. The commander downed Malgus, but the cybernetic Sith Lord pulled the ceiling down on top of them both rather than face judgment. In the rubble, the commander was alive, but Malgus's body was never recovered. While they pulled the commander out, Idair's Padawan brought the Meridian Complex's heavy defense cannons back online, hitting Krovus' fleet from the surface. Whatever hopes the Sith Empire had of defeating the Republic died on and above Corellia when those anti-spacecraft guns came back online. All three of the Sith fleets were battered from the planet and from the Republic fleet in space. On the ground, the commander's victory over Malgus allowed the assembled Jedi to reassert control of the Meridian complex. All Sith ground forces were killed or captured. All ships in the Sith fleet were destroyed, captured, or so badly scattered that they didn't even make for Dromund Kaas. As General Dairon later noted, that no ships fleeing Corellia were on a trajectory for Imperial space, including Malgus. At long last, the Republic's last Jedi had their... Comprehensive victory over the Sith Empire. In the aftermath, the victors celebrated and began making plans for the future. Though there wasn't an official plan to deal with the remnants of the Sith Empire, they
0: looked to finally be broken. Huh. Eulogy for a Sith Empire. The Sith Empire Sotor, or the true Sith Empire, or the reconstituted Sith Empire, or whatever the hell you want to call it, is, for all intents and purposes, dead. Sure, Bioware might add another content update to finalize the Sith Plague and Darth Maugus storylines, but really, they're dead and gone. A branch of the Sith that grew out of Darth Treya's final warning in KOTOR 2, which was intended as a tease for the inevitable sequel. As conceived in KOTOR 2 in 2004, the true Sith were meant to be the final boss of a KOTOR trilogy. These Sith were so powerful and evil that they could only be defeated by the combined might of Revan, the Jedi Exile, and all of their companions. However, the real world intervened, and we ended up with the true Sith of Swotor. A massive Sith Empire with a Byzantine bureaucracy that worked away in secret for thirteen hundred years, with its own fleet and Dark Council, and more Darks that you than you can shake a stick at. Yes, they're an obvious retcon, but since when is that an issue with this franchise? They were a Sith Empire. They were a Sith Empire with an Emperor so powerful in the Force that he could overwhelm the minds of Revan and Malak with a wave of his hand, or control dozens of host bodies simultaneously. But. No matter how powerful and daunting they may have been, the Sith Empire and Sith Emperor of Swotor could never win. There's simply no room in the Star Wars timeline for a rogue empire to rise up and win. Then again, maybe that's not the point. After all, with when any iteration of the Sith wins, it's only a very temporary victory because Star Wars is, at its core, a parable about the triumph of good over evil so good will ultimately win. In the end, they still had all the trappings of the Sith Empire, they relied upon the dark side, they built a humanocentric empire using slavery, and they had red lightsabers. So if it walks like a Sith and talks like a Sith, it must be a Sith, right? Well, not exactly, but they did an admirable job filling in. Sure, we could list off more issues, but we've complained enough over the course of the series, so we'll just say goodbye to this bastardized true Sith Empire, or whatever the hell you want to call it. For more about the meta and in-universe differences between the three branches of Sith and Legends, check out Supplemental Episode 7.6a. Loose Ends
1: After the Battle of Corellia, all that's left of Onslaught and Swotor is tying up the remaining loose ends or leaving them undone to tease future content, whatever the case may be. We'll start with Darth Malgus. After the battle, the Commander and other Republic and Jedi leaders openly wonder what happened to Malgus following his escape from the Meridian Complex. They knew he hadn't fled back to Sith space, as General Dayron said, none of the escaping ships did so they had no idea regarding malgus's whereabouts after this discussion the game cuts to malgus sleeping on a floating sleeping on and floating aimlessly through space during his nap malgus experiences a force vision wherein he's cornered and killed by emperor valron the vision ends and malgus awakens in terror screaming that he doesn't want to go back come to find out Malgus has been under mind control by the Sith Empire, and that's why he's back fighting with them. Fourteen years before, in 3640, the Empire found Malgus clinging to life after falling down a reactor shaft on the Emperor's fortress space station above Ilum, following his failed New Empire coup. Darth Marr had them fish the broken body out of the reactor shaft and save Malgus's life, though he probably would have just preferred death. During a painful recovery that lasted for a decade, Malgus was fitted with additional cybernetics implanted with a mind control device and underwent harsh indoctrination efforts to make him a pliable servant. Eventually, around 3630, Malgus was unleashed and used as a mind controlled enforcer by Empress Asuna and then Emperor Valron. Finally, after unsuccessfully leading Sith forces during the Third Galactic War, the Force Vision in 3626 brought Malgus to his senses, and he realized he had to fix his head. The last time we see Darth Malgus, he piloted his ship toward Dantooine, where he believes he can find a cure for the Sith mind control and indoctrination.
0: shan and the Sith Plague Even though we've already talked about Grandmaster shan's whereabouts during Onslaught, the player has no idea until the very end of the last content update. During the Third Galactic War, the Jedi openly wondered where she was and why she hadn't come out of exile to lead them in rebuilding the Order. General Derun even attempted to find Grandmaster Shan when he learned of the impending Sith attack on Ossus, but to no avail. The commander also questioned Shan's whereabouts after receiving help from her on Odessan during the alliance revolt against the Eternal Empire in 3631. After the Battle of Corellia, they got some partial answers from Lord Scourge and Kira Carson who arrived just after the battle. Scourge and Carson found the commander and told them about destroying Valcorian's original body at the same time his spirit was killed for good in 3630 and about the threat of the Sith Plague. Carson and Scourge were both left comatose by the Sith Plague for at least two years before they were discovered and awakened by Satelshan and the young Jedi she'd started training on Coruscant. The Sith Plague only left Scourge and Carson comatose because they had previously been possessed by Valkorion, which acted as a vaccine of sorts. However, Grandmaster Shan and her students did not have a vaccine and fell into a dreamlike state where their minds began to fuse together into a hive mind. Carson Scourge and Carson placed the entire group in stasis and loaded them aboard a transport ship flying through the outer rim where they could safely wait until a cure could be found. However, Scourge and Carson say that they lost contact with the ship's trans- with the transport's signal a few hours before. After debriefing, the commander speaks with Scourge, who is no longer immortal after the final death of Valkorion. Scourge says he finds it a freeing feeling, but is also deeply troubled by the bonds he's forming with people, since friendship isn't terribly common amongst the Sith. Task Force Nova. (laughs) Finally,
1: we come down to the end of the Eternal Alliance. Just like the true Sith, the Eternal Alliance can't survive the Swotor bubble, so it must be subsumed into a larger entity before the series ends. Prior to the Sith invasion of Ossus in 3627, the commander agreed to incorporate the Eternal Alliance into the Galactic Republic, but the formal details were not finalized. Now, after the Sith defeat at Corellia, the commander and interim Supreme Chancellor Galena Rods officially hammer out terms. Eternal Alliance would be dissolved and Odessan would be incorporated into the Republic, receiving its own senator in the Galactic Senate. All members of the Eternal Alliance would also be given citizenship and clean records within the Republic, paving the way for former Sith like Lana Beniko to join the Republic. The commander would then be charged with leading Task Force Nova, an initiative created by Jedi Master Nost-Dural and General Daeron, which would work to rebuild the Jedi. It wasn't fully broken like it was during KOTOR 2, but the Jedi definitely needed all the help they could get. Working with Tau Adair, Lana Beniko, Theron-Chan, and others, the commander would travel the galaxy to find as many Jedi as possible and bring them out of hiding. The task force Nova would be headquartered at Carrick Station, a space station named for our old buddy Zane Carrick. Master Nostral then publicly announced the formal return of the Jedi and the Jedi High Council, inviting members to come out of exile. Experienced knights like Kira Carson, Nadia Grell, Tawadar, Jakir Halcyon, and others were formally welcomed back into the Order, growing their numbers already. Founded in 3631, The Alliance achieved all its goals and then some, and was reorganized into the Eternal Alliance in 3630 following the defeat of the Eternal Empire. With the Eternal Alliance's dissolution and integration into the Republic as Task Force Nova in 3626, the last vestiges of Eternal Empire finally vanished from our
0: narrative forever. Where everything stands. Here at the end of Onslaught and Swotor, let's take stock of our major factions and characters so we can know how the galaxy stands in 3626. The Republic is once again the sole superpower in the galaxy with the Jedi Order rebuilding but still powerful. Whatever rift grew between the Jedi and Republic at the end of the Great Galactic War has long since been bridged. The Galactic Republic is, current, is currently led by Interim Supreme Chancellor Galena Rands, Amiri Allen, while old, reliable Chase Malcolm serves as Supreme Commander of the Republic Military. The Jedi Order is already rebuilding on Coruscant, with Nos Dural acting as leader during Grandmaster Satel Shan's absence. Presumably, they began rebuilding the Jedi High Temple around this time. As we said earlier, the Sith Empire is finished. We don't know the exact fates of some of the main players like Valron and Malgus, but the Sith military was crushed at Corellia, so any mop-up operations will have to serve as an epilogue. The Mandalorians are still led by Mandalore the Avenger, aka Shea Vizsla. They are small in number and will never attain the levels of glory they once had, but they help save the galaxy d- during the Alliance Revolt against the Eternal Empire and the Third Galactic War. The fates of Senya Tyrol and former Emperor Arcan are unknown following the end of the Alliance Revolt in 3630. As for the other main characters from Shrot- Swotor, many of their fates are uh, unknown as well. Theron Sean, Lana Benico, and Koth Fortena are all still working closely with the commander, but outside of that, we just don't know. Theron and Koth can integrate into the Republic well enough, but Lana has always been loyal to the Imperial ideal, even when it clearly didn't jibe with her personal politics. Hell, she's still got the permanent yellow dark side eyes, despite all the good she's done, so who knows how she will react to life in the Republic. Finally, as for the commander... They led Task Force Nova and presumably kept doing good deeds for the galaxy until their death in an unknown year. And with that, our Swotor narrative ends tentatively in 3626. There may be more, but as of November 11th, 2020, that's the end of Swotor.
1: Wrapping up, <clears throat> how the hell do you wrap up a story as expansive as Swotor? The truth is, you really can't, at least not very well. There's too much content, too many characters, too many branching choices to be made for us to cover everything. And that's just the stuff we covered in these eight episodes. In truth, there are fans of SWTOR who are probably going to be mad that we didn't cover a huge mission or a character they loved. If you are one of those people, please email or DM the show on Twitter and tell us why we're wrong about something we said and why we should have considered a char- or covered a character differently. There are a million ways to tell this story, and we would love to do an episode going through listener submissions about why you love Swotor and why it's not actually an overwrought soap opera. Seriously. We know that certain characters, factions, and storylines were either given very short drift or not touched at all. Further, even though they were central to part of our narrative, We still didn't do justice to excellent characters like Lana Benico, Nostadral, and Darth Marr. We know we didn't cover the class characters in enough depth, or especially for particularly beloved classes like the Imperial Smuggler, whose arc was written by Alexander Freed. Then there are the paths not taken, the stuff we missed because the commander was doing a light side run. By way of example, Theron Chan's end is absolutely heartbreaking if the commander sides with the Sith Empire on Lokath during the Order of Zildrog campaign. Theron will remain loyal to the commander, but during the subsequent fighting, Jace Malcolm is killed trying to raise the old gods and defend the Republic. Being partially responsible for his dad's death breaks Theron, and he departs the Alliance, turning into an alcoholic vagabond who spends his remaining years giving all his money away to charities in a vain attempt to assuage his guilt. We could go on and on, but the point is we know we missed some things in the telling because the series was never meant to be comprehensive of everything in the game or its five-story expansions. Hell, Swotor has multiplayer modes like a Galactic Starfighter that we didn't even talk about. Not to mention, there's four full-length novels, 17 short stories, three comic arcs, one reference book, and five cinematic trailers. So, for everything we missed, skipped, or didn't cover enough, please accept
0: this as
1: our humble apology.
0: Continuity, canon alerts, etc. You might have noticed we didn't take the time to explain or, con- or contextualize many of the continuity issues that crop up over the course of the story, something we've done with other stories. One reason is simply time. We don't have enough time to explain every issue we find. <clears throat> Excuse me. The other reason is that Sotor is the only ongoing story in Legends, and being the only one still telling a story in that continuity buys them some leeway. There's also a weird Lathe of Heaven effect that Swotor current, currently has, wherein the things that we call continuity issues in Swotor end up becoming part of the new canon. Now, only one of these qualifies as a canon alert. The rest are just plot points that are mirrored in the new canon. By now, by now you're confused, so here are a few examples. In KOTOR, the Indar Spire is shown blowing up in space, leaving only a tiny amount of debris, but in Sotor players can visit the wreck of the Indar Spire on the surface of Terrace. The same exact continuity issue later uh, showed up in 2019's The Rise of Skywalker, where the heroes visit the ruins of the second Death Star, even though it clearly exploded into space debris in Return of the Jedi. Okay, so that. Okay, that's not much so far, but let's keep going. Early in the events of Swotor, we learn that Mitra Sirik refused to become one with the Force upon her death and instead chose to remain by Revan's side and aid him during his imprisonment. We sniggered it, we sniggered about Sirik's wait and pass at the time, but it's now a piece of canon after a new reference book says that Leia did the same thing to bring her son back from the dark side in the Rise of Skywalker. During the series, we met several we met several th- thousand of the Sith Emperor's host bodies, including the children of the Emperor, who didn't even know they were possessed. Another new reference book now confirms that this is how the resurrected Palpatine used Snoke as a puppet, saying Snoke may not have even been aware of his true master, which was a key aspect of the children of the Emperor. Another recurring aspect of Swotor was the Sith Emperor's constant ability to cheat death through various hosts and rituals, much like Palpatine's surviving Return of the Jedi and reappearing in The Rise of Skywalker. In SWTOR, we also see the Sith Empire build or the Sith Emperor build a second empire with a massive fleet in secrecy, something even in-game dialogue notes as far-fetched. Uh, Of course, it also became a canonical plot point when Palpatine showed up in The Rise of Skywalker with a secret empire called the Sith Eternal.
1: Mm. Now, let's be clear. None of these examples have been incorporated into canon specifically from a They are just general plot points or story elements from the game that bear similarities to events that have since appeared in canon. Frankly, most of them are actually ideas that showed up in Tom Veitch's Dark Empire trilogy of comics from the early nineties. So maybe the lesson is that the real owner of the Star Wars lath of heaven is Tom Veitch. However, there's one final Swotor anachronism that was canonized, which brings us to our first canon alert of the series. It's not that we are waiting to introduce canon alerts for Swotor; just there aren't many, and one of them is from a book released a month ago. <clears throat> Canon Alert 41. In Swotor, we briefly noted that the Chiss Ascendancy partnered with the True Sith Empire and later the Eternal Alliance during the events of the game, and the Chiss are one of the handful of species the player can choose for their created character. This presented a problem because the Chiss in Legends were said to be a secretive species that had no presence in the galaxy before Thrawn met Palpatine sometime before the Clone Wars. Until now, that was assumed to be the case in canon. However, Timothy Zahn's new novel, Thrawn Ascendancy Chaos Rising, which was released in September 2020, changes the legend's history. In Chaos Rising, Thrawn and another character make reference to a somewhat dark time during the era of the Old Republic, when the Chiss took an active part in the wars between the Galactic Republic and Sith Empire. This establishes that the Chiss had contact with the galaxy thousands of years in the past and is taken as a reference to the Chiss appearance in SWOTOR, a game that author Timothy Zahn has written for in the past. So, there you go. An anachronistic continuity issue from SWOTOR has been incorporated into the new canon. With that done, there's really only one canon alert left from Swotor. Actually,
0: there's two. I should have changed that. Canon Alert 42. The emblem used by the Galactic Republic during the Old Republic era is the exact same emblem the Old Republic government used in Swotor. It was canonized in in the Season 5 episode of The Clone Wars entitled, A Test of Strength, where the fated emblem of the Old Republic can be seen on a ship's interior hull. Later production notes confirmed that the emblem was taken directly from the one used in Swotor. If you won't see the emblem, just check out the logo of our podcast. It's the white circular image of a rising phoenix. Obviously, the Fotor lettering was added later. Uh, Canon Alert 43. The Tatooine settlement of Mos Pelgo was first introduced in Swotor's third story expansion, Knights of the Fallen Empire. It doesn't play much of a role, it's just name checked briefly in the story. The settlement was later canonized in the Aftermath trilogy of books and then featured prominently in the premiere of Season 2 of The Mandalorian, released in October 2020. As we noted at the beginning of, the ep- of Episode 7.6, Mos Pelgo is a settlement on Tatooine that was attacked by a crate Dragon. The settlers banded together with the Mandalorian, the Sheriff, and a group of Tusken Raiders to defeat the crate Dragon and save Mos Pelgo.
1: Swotor, in summation, to be totally honest and give you a little peek behind the curtain here, the Series 7 narrative was the most difficult to construct thus far. We joke about the mountain of content Swotor has, but even the base aspects of the game have their own lore that need to be explained. To give you some idea, most Star Wars fans have never played or even heard of Swotor, and the vast majority of fans who have any familiarity with it at all know it the game from seeing one of its initial three cinematic trailers. So that's an entry point for some people, but those cinematics have almost no dialogue and they take place 38, 24, and 10 years before the game's prologues even begin, requiring even more explanation. Even choosing a starting point is difficult. You can't very well just start by introducing the class characters in 3643 because that overlooks the Great Galactic War in the first 10 years of the Cold War. Not to mention that you really need to start with the Revan novel to understand how we got from KOTOR and KOTOR 2 to SWTOR, and that novel mostly occurs in 3950. But then, you still have to differentiate the true Sith Empire with the Sith we're used to, so that takes us back to 5000 BBY, when the original Sith Empire was fractured following the Great Hyperspace War. Even then, you have to introduce the game's central figure, the Sith Emperor, who goes by no less than four different names or titles, inhabits dozens of host bodies, and was born in 5,113 BBY. Finally, we have a good starting point in 5,113, which is only 1,470 years before the game's prologues actually begin. Now, what were we talking about?
0: Reset. The goal was to build a Sotor narrative that even casual fans could follow from thirty six eighty one, when the true Sith reemerged, until thirty six twenty six, when onslaught presumably ends. That seventy five year period covers the Galactic War, the Cold War. Or I'm sorry, it covers the Great Galactic War, the Cold War, the Galactic War, the Eternal Empire raids and subsequent invasion. The Alliance Revolt against the Eternal Empire, the Order of Zildrog campaign, and lastly, the Third Galactic War. Obviously, we had to make room in the narrative for background on the true Sith, the Sith Emperor, the Eternal Empire, and our brief detour from the narrative to introduce the class characters. We know that the amount of content was like trying to drink from a fire hose, but hopefully this series gave you a good outline of Suitor, Or maybe you just let it happen. At the beginning of Sotor, we said the events take place within a bubble, and indeed they do. After this episode, we will take a detour to visit another of the three, branch, three Sith branches as we finish up the Lost Tribe of the Sith storyline. The Lost Tribe stuff skips around in the Old Republic timeline, with events happening in 5,000, 4975, 3960, 3000, and 2975 BBY. We covered 5,049.75 in episode 3.1, but we're fleshing it out more and covering everything in series 8, which will consist of one episode. That will include meta about the Lost Tribe and all of their various adventures. If you're confused, that's okay because it's a little confusing, but we'll sort it all out in series 8. After that, we'll finish up the Old Republic stories in series 9, covering the new Sith wars. Darth Bane's adoption of the Rule of Two, and the Rusan Ru- the, the Reformation. On that note, we'll slam the reset button on the galaxy and say goodbye to Swator. Well, unless you hear an epilogue after this, in which case, Bioware did add a new content update for Swator, and we recorded a short epilogue to this episode about it. Otherwise, enjoy the
1: reset. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will talk about the strange history of the Lost Tribe of the Sith in Series 8. You can follow us on Twitter, photopod, or email us at photopodcast at gmail.com. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter.
0: And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again, and may the Force be with you. Epilogue time! Well, BioWare added new content to the game, so here's your epilogue. SOTOR couldn't even wait until 2021 and released its latest content update, Echoes of Oblivion, for the Onslaught story expansion on December 9th, 2020. You might be inclined to think that Echoes of Oblivion will be the last SOTOR update because it resolves all but one of the outstanding questions we had at the end of episode episode 7.7. Of course, that one loose end is Darth Malgus, and he's been an antagonist since uh, since the game was first released back in 2011, so they'll almost certainly release additional content after early 2021 because Malgus is such a big deal, and the ending of Echoes of Oblivion sets it up. As of February 16th, 2021, the date, of this, the date this epilogue is being recorded, there's been no official announcement about the future of Swotor and whether or not more content updates or expansions are forthcoming. We will come back and add another epilogue if and when the if and when the next content update, update is released. So with that out of the way, let's get to this delicious, delicious content. In Echoes of Oblivion, the player once again assumes the role of the commander and serves as the protagonist. We will of course be doing a light side run just like we have for everything else. The commander is initially joined by Scourge and Jedi Knight Kira Carson as companions, but is then joined by dozens more allies who they get to fight beside. Echoes of Oblivion goes to great lengths to bring back almost every important character from the series with the exclusion of Malgus and, oddly, Koth Vortenna. We've got Lana Benico and Theron Sean, of course, as well as Arkan, Senya Valen, Revan's Force Ghost, Mitra Surik's Force Ghost, Mandalore the Avenger, Darth Marr's Force Ghost, and many more. How is that all possible? Well, roughly 99% of this update takes place in Satil Sean's mind, so the dead can wield lightsabers and anything goes. They all gather to oppose Valkorion's last, desperate attempt to resurrect himself. So with that out of the way, let's get into it. The new update picks up days after the Republic and Jedi's successful defense of the Meridian Complex on Corellia in 3626. The Battle of Corellia shattered the remaining Truce Fleet and very likely consigned the Empire to the dustbin of history, to the dustbin of galactic history. Though we don't know if the Third Galactic War was officially has officially ended just yet. However, there is still the matter of finding and rescuing Jedi Grandmaster Satel Shan and her Jedi students. If you've just finished episode seven point seven and you're wondering why we're doing a recap for details we covered ten minutes ago, this epilogue will also be released as a standalone episode so we had to set the, set the stage for listeners who already finished our SWTOR series some time ago. You recall that Sean and her six Padawans had been infected with the Sith Plague after rescuing Kira Carson and Scourge in 3627. The duo had been comatose for more than two years after unwittingly unleashing the Sith Plague by destroying Valkorian's original pure blood Sith body. Carson and Scourge were immunized from the worst effects of the plague because they had been possessed by the Sith Emperor but each was left comatose. Unfortunately, Shan and her six students had no such immunity and were immediately infected after reviving Scourge and Carson. The plague worked by creating a hive mind amongst its victims which would allow Valkorion to manifest in their minds and once again assume physical form. In order to stop the spread, Carson and Scourge placed Shan and her students into stasis and quarantined all seven individuals aboard a ship traveling through the uninhabited sectors of the Outer Rim. In early 3626, Scourge and Carson returned to known space and met with the commander immediately following the Battle of Corellia. By then, they had lost contact with the quarantine ship and were worried for the safety of Shan and her students. Given the very real-world pandemic, BioWare has understandably moved away from terminology centered on plagues and vaccinations. So in Echoes of Oblivion, the Sith Plague is now called Tenebrae's Curse and referred to more in terms of being the result of Sith magic released when the pureblood body when his original pure-blood Sith body was destroyed instead of a deadly pathogen. But enough of that recap, let's get on with the action. Echoes of Oblivion begins when the Astromech T701 piloting a ship through the outer rim in search of the missing quarantine ship containing Sean and her students. After some fruitless searching, T-7 finally hit paydirt and sent word back to the commander, Kira Carson, and Scourge on Odessan. However, during the call, T-7's ship was attacked and the transmission dropped, causing everyone on Odessan to spring into action. Scourge and Carson suspect that the Emperor's hand is behind the attack on T-7 as they want to resurrect the Sith Emperor no matter what. Initially, the commander Scourge and Carson vow to go alone so that no one else will be possessed in turn by Valkorian's spirit, but it won't be that easy. Theron Sean demands to join the mission to do everything possible to save his mother, while Arkhan and Senya Tural say that they will go to help Valco- help defeat Valkorian once and for all. Lana Benico wants to go, but can't, but, but can't because she hadn't been previously, previously possessed and is Force-sensitive, something Valkorian would feed upon. Benico stays behind on Odessa while the rest of the group travel to the quarantine ship in an unknown Outer Rim system. There, they find no trace of T-7's ship but are attacked by members of the Emperor's Hand whose ship was quickly shot down by Arcan and Senya's shuttle. The ship's then docked with the ship with the quarantine ship containing sean and her students the emperor's hand members the emperor's hand members controlled the ship but their efforts to access the jedi with them were frustrated for days by an unknown entity that was later revealed to have been t7 the emperor's hand were a secretive dark side organization who served Valcor who served valkorian alone and had been seeking ways to resurrect him for years each member was force sensitive and they were given numerical ranks based based upon their order of entry into the Emperor's Hand organization. Back in Episode 7.4, we met Servant 1 and Servant 2 during the Sith Warriors class character storyline. That was in 3642, but 16 years later, the longest serving member is Servant 4, who is leading the attack on a quarantine ship. She is accompanied by Servants 15 and 22, both of whom are killed, killed by Scourge shortly after boarding. The group split up and jettisoned all. Li- the group split up to search the ship and jettison all lifecraft and ships to prevent anyone from being affected and, es- and escaping. During the search, the commander and scourge found the bodies of members of the signs of Zakul, a group of seers loyal to Valkorion. They were then confronted by the Force Ghost of Revan, who said that Valkorion was trying to make himself remake himself into Satil Shan's mind. Valkorion planned to hollow out Shan's mind, use her body as a vessel for his spirit, and then rule the galaxy. It soon became apparent that Revan had been secretly leading Scourge on the search and that Scourge kept it a secret because Kira didn't trust Revan after all that dark side stuff in the Shadow of Revan expansion. With the ship secured and all escape routes locked down, the commander and their allies converged on the bridge. They arrive just as the remaining members of the Emperor's Hand gain entry to sitil and her Padawans and place their body in a ritualistic formation with Shan in the center and six students encircling their master. Servant Four is in the process of killing the last of the Scions of Zakul, who have been protecting the Jedi from corruption by the Emperor's Hand. As the last Scion dies, the three remaining servants each die in turn, and just like that, all of Valkorion's remaining adherents have been defeated. All that's left is to enter Satil Shan's mind palace and finally, permanently, hopefully, kill Valkorian. We learn that Shan and four of her Padawans are all clinging to life while two of the others had already died. The group acted quickly, and the commander, Kira Carson Scourge, Senya and Arkan each took position around the Comatose Jedi. Kira would lead them in deep meditation, which they would use to enter Satil's mind and attempt to destroy their enemy within there and Sean opted to look after the ship and protect everyone because he didn't want to venture inside his mother's mind. As the group meditates together, they enter Satil's mind but are separated save for the commander and Carson who wake up next to one another. Sean's mind is represented as a place of floating platforms, of of craggy rocks, and stones with purple storm clouds passing in the background. It honestly Kinda looks like Malakor Five did in Kotor Two, though obviously not as unfinished. As the commander and Kira begin searching for the others, they encounter Valcorian. Though he doesn't seem to recognize them at first, it's clear that this is Valcorian. But he has none of his memories. It, this it's clear that this is Valcorian, and that he has none of his memories. But is able but he is able to tap into Satil Shan's memories to discover their identities. Valkorion summons dark side entities to aid him, but but the commander and Carson still have their lightsabers, which they use to successfully defeat Valkorion. Of course, he would not die so easily. Dusting off his hands, Valkorion mocks his Jedi opponent and is soon joined by by his two other known guises, the form of the Sith Emperor and the form of Tenebrae. Players remember the Sith Emperor as the main antagonist of the original story of Sotor, who was killed in 3640 by the Hero of Titan. However, this is our first look at Tenebrae in his original pure-blood Sith body, and he is gloriously shirtless. Yes, Carson and Scourge found and destroyed his body, but that's something the player learns about from dialogue after the fact. There's not even a cutscene, we just know they found the body and destroyed it. But now we see Tenebrae and his muscular red, red skin is imprinted with the ritual that made this meeting possible. He's wearing ceremonial Sith garments, much like Naga Siddow wore War in Tales of the Jedi, and Carson soon realizes that this is all Tenebrae is doing. The reason Valkorion didn't know them is because Tenebrae didn't know them before he left his original body over 1,000 years ago. The markings in his skin weren't ritualized carvings, but an imprint of Tenebrae's very essence, which is what infected Carson and Scourge when they destroyed the body. Tenebrae declares that the other, his other versions were imperfect and too worried with mortal concerns such as empires and families. Neither Valkorion nor the Sith Emperor is calling the shots here. Instead, each is subservient to Tenebrae and he aimed to succeed where they had failed, utilizing all three forms to resurrect himself within Sean's body. The commander and Carson fought all three forms briefly but were put on the defense and encircled then valkorian declared that they controlled shan's mind completely and the sith emperor form separated the commander in a blinding flash of light the commander woke alone in a new location within shan's mind and was set upon by the tenebrae form but was saved at the last moment by the force ghost of revan using his familiar purple lightsaber revan slashed through slashed through as the tenebrae form disappeared and before you ask, yes, Force Ghost of a Long Dead Jedi can wield lightsabers in Sattel's mind. Revan then declared that they had to fight together to save Sattel and themselves, and for the first time in the Old Republic, the player character gets to fight alongside Revan. You're not fighting against, you're not fighting against Revan or hearing about one of, one of Revan's duels. You're fighting with him as a companion, and no matter how contrived the circumstances, that's pretty damn cool. Revan and the commander battled the Sith Emperor, who conjured a number of shades, malevolent malevolent beings of pure dark side energy, to fight alongside him. The Sith Emperor and his shades are quickly defeated, but the other two forms of Tenebrae appear and encircle our heroes, but just as things started to look grim, an old friend appeared to help. Stepping out of the ether, the force ghost of Mitra Surik declared that Tenebrae's time was at an end, and Scourge arrived to reinforce the message, seeing that he was outnumbered. Tenebrae once again shifted Satel's mind in a bright flash of light, and the commander woke up alone again, but he wasn't alone for but he wasn't alone for long as the Force ghost of Darth Mar arrived to join the fight. Mar tells the commander that Tenebrae can control Satell's mind in limited fashion, but he is only a duplicate of its original self. Tenebrae can mine Sattel for and her students' memories for knowledge, but he lacks the wisdom that usually comes with such experiences. Mar says that although Tenebrae is an inferior duplicate of the original, he is still the most dangerous b- being in the galaxy. Mar says that everyone linked to Satell's mind must unite to destroy Tenebrae, and they must do so at the center of Satell's mind. Then, oddly, Darth Maar shifted Satil's mind in a blinding flash of light and the commander woke up alone once again. The commander awakens in a different location, but this one has grass growing on the jagged, otherwise desolate landscape. In the background, a recreation of the Jedi High Temple on Tython lies in the center of Sean's mind. But before the commander can reach it, their path is blocked by the three forms of Tenebrae as well as the force ghosts of Valen and Thexan, Arcan's two dead siblings. The commander is soon joined by Senya Tural and Arcan, but Senya and Valen are still on bad terms. Valen refuses to help, claiming that she was only there because Thexan dragged her out of the netherworld of the Force. However, during this encounter, Senya realizes she must admit her own mistakes to Valen and try to make things right. Senya confesses that she was scared to act against Valkorian to stop her husband from caging and constraining Valen. At this, Valen seems to relent from her anger at Senya and Arcan and decides to lend her power to stop Tenebrae. Valkorian attempts to control Valen's mind, but Valen had long since broken his chains and she blasted the Valkorian form out of existence with forced lightning. Then, Arkhan, Senya, Valen, and Thexen attacked Tenebrae together to give the commander a chance to reach the Jedi Temple at the center of Satel's mind. There, Grandmaster Satel Sean waits, meditating with her students' bodies lying around her in a circle. But before the commander can awaken Sean, all three forms of Tenebrae appear within the Temple. Tenebrae Proclaims that he controls Sha's mind and then draws upon the dark side to unleash a massive blast of force energy, dis- destroying the recreation of the temple. In spite of the effort of Satil Shawn, her students, the commander, and their many allies, it appeared that Tenebrae was just too strong. He destroyed the Jedi, the last bit of pr- the. He destroyed the Jedi temple, the last bit of protection left in Satil's mind, and was prepared to destroy the last vestiges of Satil and take control. But looks can be deceiving and, as we all know, Shan is no weak-willed puppet. As Valkorion and the Sith Emperor gloat over their victory, Shan rises from her meditation and rips victory from the jaws of defeat one last time. It's a trap. Grandmaster Shan revealed that everything happening within her mind was part of a trap meant to ensnare and destroy Tenebrae once and for all. She knew that Tenebrae was too proudful and he would attempt to dominate the mind of the master, not one of her weak students, and Satell was ready. She she knew that Tenebrae would tear through her mind and those of her students, gathering strength and power as he went until he reached the center of Sean's mind, the core of her being. Satell knew it was risky to allow Tenebrae to gain power, but she had no other choice and she had to wait for help to arrive. The center of her mind was the only place where Tenebra, Tenebrae couldn't change. The center of her mind was the only place. Tenebrae couldn't change using his power. Satel's willpower was too strong to be molded and shaped. And once the commander, who had already defeated Valkorian, arrived, she sprung the trap. The center of her mind, which once resembled the Jedi Temple, was revealed to be a wide, rocky platform floating high above the other platforms. Without the ability to change Satel's mind, the three forms of Tenebrae were trapped, and Satel was prepared to end it. Whereas the commander maintained a safe distance from Tenebrae's forms, Shan walked up to them without an ounce of fear, and this unnerved each of the forms. For a moment, it appeared that Shan Shan had become too arrogant and too sure of her victory. After all, it was still the three forms of Tenebrae against just Satel Shan and the commander. Those aren't exactly overwhelmingly favorable odds. But, of course, Shan has thought of everything. She had let Tenebrae believe he was invincible until that very moment when he, fu- when he was fully caught in the trap with no means of escape. Then she called in the cavalry. Yes, the commander was essential because they had the power to defeat Tenebrae, but they would need much more than that if they hoped to prevail. First, Shan's four remaining Padawans rose and joined their master. Then all the allies who had joined on the mission thus far from a, emerged from a portal behind the commander. Arkan, Senior Teral, Darth Darthmar, Revan, Scourge, Kira Carson, Thexen, and Valen were all there. Shan had called them all together against Tenebrae. Had called them together after Tenebrae scattered them throughout her mind palace, and now the fifteen allies stood together. Tenebrae saw the host opposing him and prepared to fight. There was nowhere else to go, no additional time to gather more power, and that only left one option. Seeing this, Tenebrae called upon the dark side and consolidated each of his three forms, and then took on the appearance of a taller version of Valcorian with glowing red eyes. He also summoned more dark side shades to aid against so many enemies. A ferocious battle ensued that saw valkorian unleash torrents of force lightning and absorb several deadly lightsaber blows, only to keep fighting. Valkorion was eventually defeated, but the Sith Emperor form emerged to take up the fight. Even taller than the Valcorian form, the Sith Emperor wielded a massive red lightsaber and had grown, and had grown to double the, the height of an average human. The Sith Emperor lashed out, throwing his opponents back and barraging them with dark side energy. He also unleashed even more shades to obstruct and delay the commander and their allies, but Satil gave strength to her comrades and healed those who were wounded, sustaining the fight. Slowly but surely, the Sith Emperor was weakened and defeated. As the Sith Emperor form faded, Tenebrae finally emerged and unleashed over a thousand years of pent-up rage. Though he appeared normal height at first, Tenebrae began to grow during the fight, feeding on the fear and chaos until he was at least three times as tall as a human. Tenebrae called upon his knowledge of Sith magic and the dark side to defend himself. He tossed enemies across the rocky platform with the Force and hit them with concentrated blasts of dark side energy, but it was not enough. Whatever Tenebrae tried, Satilshan matched by healing her allies and boosting them with her skills in battle meditation, just like her ancestor, Shan. It took some time, but the commander and their allies defeated Tenebrae at last, though he had one more ace in the hole. Blasting the commander and their allies back, Tenebrae split into three forms and began drawing upon the dark side, attempting to possess the commander and gain the advantage. advantage. At first, Tenebrae's last gas plan appeared to be working, but Satel was prepared, having planned for everything, even this. Tenebrae used his power to force the commander to rise and overwhelm their mind, but Satel used that time to project a protective force barrier around the group of allies. This allowed the others to rise and lend their strength to to the commander to fight off Tenebrae. Tenebrae might be able to dominate one of them, but not all of them, not this time. The three forms of Tenebrae tried to break Shan's barrier, but the dark side energy began to wane, and that's when Satel called in every reinforcement she could muster. Suddenly, the platform was pil- was filled with projections of hundreds of beings who had opposed Tenebrae over the millennia, most of whom were long dead. Much like the conclusion of Avengers Endgame, the reinforcements poured in from portals in Shan's mind. These new faces form into three groups, those wronged by, by, those wronged by Valkorion, those wronged by the Sith Emperor, and then everyone else who held a ag- grudge against Tenebrae generally. Representatives or force projections of of everyone that Tenebrae had betrayed, manipulated, and murdered, all gathered against him. A host of Zekulian civilians, members of the Knights of Zekul, and members of the Scions of Zekul gathered behind Sinya, Arkan, Thexan, and Valen to oppose Valkorion. Next, the children of the Emperor, such as Jedi Master Sio Bacarn and Suri, gathered behind Kira Carson and Scourge to oppose the Sith Emperor. Finally, Jedi and members of the true Sith Empire who were killed during the scouring of Zyost gathered behind Mitra Sirk to oppose Tenebrae. In total, hundreds stood on the platform in Shawn's mind, but they represented millions millions more who had stood up against Tenebrae in one way or another. Tenebrae tried to keep up the fight, but those opposed to him knew his weakness and his fear knew his weakness and his fear of death, and their combined strength was too much even for Tenebrae's formidable powers. Finally, Revan stepped forward and said that the Force always seeks balance, and the three forms of Tenebrae began to falter. Tenebrae attempted to claim dominion over the Force and his own mortality, but the commander declared that, in the end, Tenebrae was nothing. The three forms of Tenebrae then each turned to stone and crumbled into dust. So it was that Tenebrae, or whatever the hell you want to call him, finally met his permanent end in the mind of Satele shan After Tenebrae's death, all those who helped went unconscious as they left Satel's mind, but but the Jedi Grandmaster had a few more words for the commander. When the commander awoke, they were in a campfire surrounded by a forest. All the others were gone at this point. Theron Sean, Scourge, and Kira Carson awoke first and took... Shone students back to Coruscant for medical aid and much-needed rest. Arkan and Sinya had already returned to Odessa, in which they now considered their home. Meanwhile, Satel says the dead al- the dead allies who aided them, Revan, Mitrasuric, Darth Mar Thexon and Valen, became one with the Force and found their peace. The only run- the only ones who remained were the only ones who remained in Satel's mind were the commander and Grandmaster Master and the and the projection of a cozy campfire. Shan wanted to speak with the commander privately and thank them for finally defeating Tenebrae. Both could feel his presence was gone from the galaxy forever and their relief was palpable. But, more importantly, Shan also thanked the commander for befriending Theron and giving him the home and family she never could. For the first time in many, many years, we see Satelshan let her guard down and she shares a warm smile with the commander. She's no longer the unsure Jedi Padawan we met above Korriban in 3681, or the firebrand Jedi Knight who sprinted across Alderaan to save it from the Sith in thirty six thirty seven or 3667. By 3626, Satel's once jet black hair had started to gray and wrinkles lined her face, but as she proved against Tenebrae, her powers were not diminished one bit. If anything, Satel Sham was more powerful at age 73 than she had been as a young Jedi Master, and she was prepared to lead the Jedi Order into the future. And, for the first time in 1,487 years, it was a future free of Tenebrae's dark influence. Satel thanked the commander one last time, and they agreed to try and create a better future for the galaxy together. Then, the commander awoke on their ship with Lana Bonico looking on. Nico was worried that the commander had been unconscious for an hour after the others had left. The commander thanked Lana for her concern and agreed to explain everything on the trip back to Odessa, As their shuttle departs for home, and with Tenebrae finally gone for good, Echoes of Oblivion comes to an end. Nah, just kidding. There's a very brief epilogue to Echoes of Oblivion, and it involves a character we haven't seen or heard from since the beginning of Series 7. Okay, let's back up. In episode 7.1 and 7.2, we briefly focused on a young Jedi knight named Aaron Lanier who, in 3653, ignored the orders of the Jedi and traveled to Coruscant to take revenge on Darth Malgus for the murder of her master, Vinzallo. Lanier arrived during the final day of the True Sith Empire's sack of Coruscant and dueled Malgus two separate times on the city planet. During their second fight, Lanier nearly murdered Malgus's Twi'lek lover, Alina Daru, but couldn't bring herself to embrace the dark side. Instead, Erin Lanier continued to fight Malgus and was eventually defeated. However, Malgus refused to kill Lanier, returning the favor after she had spared Alina Daru earlier. As far as we know, this is the only act of restraint and thanks we ever see from Malgus in all of SWTOR. After escaping Coruscant, Lanier was exiled from the Jedi Order for disobeying rules and nearly restarting the Great Galactic War while the, the peace treaty was being hammered out. The young Jedi accepted her ex- exile, though they left an avenue open for her to return in the future if she wanted. In the aftermath, Aaron Lanier settled on Dantooine with Zerid Kor, the smuggler who had helped her travel to Coruscant in the first place, and Kor's daughter. Lanier and the chorus would live quietly on Dantooine for the next 27 years until 3626. Now fast forward to 3626. You'll recall that, at the end of the last update, Malgus was traveling to Dantooine after the Battle of Corellia, believing that something or someone on Dantooine held the key to breaking the Sith mind control over him. Well, one tiny piece of info we failed to include from the very end of the last update was that Aaron Lanier shows up briefly. Just days after the true Sith fleet was destroyed at the, at the Battle of Corellia, Aaron Lanier felt a disturbance in the force as her old nemesis Darth Malgus landed on Dantooine. We don't know what transpired between Lanier and Malgus at that time, whether he took Kor and his daughter hostage or asked for asylum or something else, because it's only a half-second glimpse. That info will presumably... That info will presumably inform whatever content update come ne- comes next. We only know that days after Maugus' arrival, Aaron Lanier traveled alone to the Jedi High Temple on Coruscant to find Grandmaster Satel Shan and tell her story. In the present day, shortly after the death of Tenebrae in 3626, the Jedi Temple is bustling and Sean has resumed her old post as the leader of the Order. As Echoes of Oblivion ends, Lanier enters the temple and approaches Sean, who is very interested to hear her story, though the exact nature and circumstances are left completely ambiguous. Then the screen fades to black and leaves us with a cliffhanger about the fate of Darth Malgus, who now serves as the lone remaining loose end from Sotor. Of course, that cliffhanger almost certainly means that There will be at least one more content update for SWTOR to settle the fate of Malgus and explain the end of the true Sith Empire once and for all. Back in episode 7.1, we said the series would follow the careers of Satel shahn and Darth Malgus directly. We just didn't know how right we would end up being. They started out as bitter enemies dueling on a space station above Korriban and have since risen to claim power and utterly failed in their endeavors. Now, after Echoes of Oblivion, Sattil- Sean's story has wrapped up quite, quite nicely, and she's back serving as the Grandmaster of the Jedi Order. So it only makes sense that we would get one final content update to wrap up Darth Malgus' story too. With that, we'll end this epilogue in 3626 BBY with the fate of Malgus and the contents of Lanier's story as yet unknown. That's where everything from that's where everything in Swotor, from the prologues to the most recent update for on, for the Onslaught story expansion, stands as of February sixteenth, twenty twenty one. We'd say this is the end of Swotor, but that seems unlikely. That seems highly unlikely. So we'll just say, see you next epilogue. And with that. Thank you once again for listening to a people's history of the Old Republic. Since I am not good at these things, I. I'm not going to do the outro, but I did want to thank you once again for listening and say, may the force be with you.